This podcast may contain inaccurate information, bad language, and spoilers. When life gets you down, your car just won't start. It's time for Agony R. If you've reached a dead end, you're not sure what to do. Well, Agony Art is for you. At times life is grand, you've got the world in your hands. Then somehow you drop that ball. Drop that ball. Instead of watching it fall, give Agony Art a call. Welcome to Agony Art, the Agony Art podcast in which we try to solve your problems not using our own brain power. <laughs> no way! But instead by telling you how those problems were solved in the great art of our age. And when we inevitably fail to solve those problems, at least you're left with a fun reading, listening and watching list to enjoy in your spare time. My name's Aaron. I'm an author. And I can't speak very quickly without tripping over my words. And I've got Carl, our film fan. And Liam, our music maestro mogul magnate, here with me in our online studio because we could not get together. Say hello, lads, remotely. Hello, lads, remotely. Remotely, hello, lads. <laughs> What's that song, Liam? Let's get together. Right Let's get now. it on. Oh, yeah. Uh. <laughs> sweet harmony. I no, don't no, know one. this song, Carl. Yeah, Aaron, you know, don't you? Yeah. People all over the Let's world. Let's come together right now. Oh, yeah. Start a love sweet train. harmony. Yeah. <laughs> now, lads. Today is December the 1st. Is it? Do you know when episode one of series one of Agony Art was released? Um, September the 27th, 1992. Was it? Was it the 1st of December 2019? The 2nd of December 2020. As of tomorrow, Agony Art is one year old. Wait, did we only release in 2020? Yeah. Really? Oh. Happy birthday, lads. Happy birthday. What have you got me? Happy birthday <laughs> to you. Uh, what would you say are the highlights? We I tried to get Davina McCall in to give us our highlights reel. But, um... I reckon it was the break in between seasons. <laughs> that was my favourite bit because <laughs> well, I didn't I think, have any prep to do. <laughs> I think that um, the the season two getaway that was a bit of a highlight. I mean, the listeners won't really know much about that, but we yeah. we squirrelled ourselves did, away in a mm, home away from we did, home. Um, we did mention it on the podcast, didn't we? That we were in a secret location. The problem was getting to that underground bunker, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's two miles below the Earth's surface. Yeah, we had to get um, and Nicholas Cage to guide us there. The the bigger problem was getting out once everyone realised where we were. Let's wait for that guys to take us all the way to the back to the surface, riding a giant tortoise shell. I don't know what that re- that is a reference to. Is it Journey to the Center of the Earth? It it's is funny Nemo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny Nemo as well. Yeah. Highlights. <laughs> what are our highlights? What have we loved about this? I tell you what. This sound. I don't know if this. I love listening back. And laughing. <laughs> Listening back and laughing at Carl laughing. We are <laughs> so funny. <laughs> well, it's just like we said the other day, the funniest bit about this podcast is when Carl finds something really funny and he goes... 
<laughs> I love that shit. So I, I think you know, you know, I haven't got the best memory, and so when mm. I do listen, I generally have forgotten what we spoke about. Like I even, <laughs> I even forget, I forget my own examples. Like, oh, what did I say here? And so I do listen as like a new listener, and like some of the episodes, I think the sex special had me in absolute stitches. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think you know, I've I've had I've had a lot of laughs with you lads over the last year, so thank you oh. for bringing sunshine and happiness into my life <laughs> and to your otherwise miserable life. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's been great, lads, and uh, this is just the start of a twenty-year journey, so. <laughs> uh, start prepping Liam before we begin I want to make it very clear that we're not really here to solve your life's hardest problems all of our <laughs> submissions <laughs> keep that in <laughs> thanks Carl <laughs> all of our submissions since a year ago have been certified 100% trivial and or fictional pickles and our advice should nearly never be followed. So we're really only here to have fun. So if you're having a really hard time, please go to our website for guidance on people who are more equipped than us to help you. That's agonyartpodcast.com. So with that out of the way, let's get on with it. Here is our first problem of today. All the shelves and flat surfaces in my workplace are covered in little sculptures and trinkets. Little decorative items that are supposed to make the place seem cool and trendy. The thing is, one of these little sculptures is part of a series, and it's the only one I need to complete my collection of that series. It's a rare one as well. So rare that I've no idea how they got hold of it. There are so many random things all over the office with no connection to each other and no reason to be there that I'm 100% sure that no one would miss this one if I took it home one day. In fact, that's exactly what I've been considering lately. The only thing that's stopping me is that I know stealing is wrong. Can you give me a good reason why I shouldn't just shove it in my bag one day? I'll tell you what you are stealing. My time reading this problem. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, yeah, we had a long problem last week as well. Normally, I try to like... I'm sorry, listeners, but when you send in your problems, I try to kind of paraphrase to make them a bit shorter, but I think we should allow longer problems because they provide greater context, don't they? If you could just provide a shorter summary for, for, for my benefit. You know, what they, <laughs> you know what they say about long problems? Long solutions. <laughs> yeah, big say? dicks. <laughs> <laughs> big, big shoes. Big shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, Liam, this bloke has seen something at work that he wants to steal because he needs it to complete his collection of, I don't know, Funko Pops, something like that. Other sculptures are available. Other shit plastic toys are available. <laughs> <laughs> so so who has who has a collection? The collector. Yeah. Benicio <laughs> del Toro. Benicio. Yeah, all right. Let's call this guy Benicio. So... It's been a couple of episodes since we've explained this. So, listeners, when you send in a problem, we anonymize you. We don't want you to be identified at work when you're stealing things. So, we'll give you a fake name. In this case, we're going to call this person Benicio because he is the collector. So, who can help Benicio? I can help Benicio. Have you seen a film 
called? The Italian Job. The I'm going to re- bet neither of you have seen it. The remake was on Channel 5, I want to say, the other day. Yeah, I watched the middle 45 minutes of it. So did I. <laughs> <laughs> I had to go out. It, it bears um, no resemblance to the original from 1969. Yeah, it's got... Michael Caine, isn't it? Yeah, not a lot of people know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to talk about the remake, which was um, Edward Norton. Yeah, that's right. Charlie's Theron. I love both of those people so yeah. much. Yeah. How have you, Joe? Uh, Jad, you know so much about it. Uh, everyone knows about the remake, don't they? Because it, it was a bit of a flop at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, 2003 it was. Um, it was a little bit decent shit. Decent cast. It was a little bit shit. And the only re- the only similarities to the Italian job was he just, Michael, Mark Wahlberg, and he goes, they're going, how are we going to get it? And he goes, we'll do it like the Italian job, which is in minis. <laughs> they just use minis, basically. There's no, no other. There's gold in it and there's minis. That's about it. But anyway, Jason Statham's in it, and he has he has the weirdest accent. I couldn't place it. I don't know if he was trying to do one or not. Do one. He tries to do one in um, the Transporter series, doesn't he? And he's just terrible at it. International American style thing, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But anyway, sorry, Carl. Yeah. So the you're talking about the original, are you? The original one, the best. Yeah. Directed Mm. by Peter Collinson. Same name as the Mark Wahlberg. I can't believe we're like referencing the Mark Wahlberg one as like the <laughs> as, as our control. It was a prequel to the Mark Wahlberg one. Yeah, yeah. It's about our level of culture, isn't it? Really. <laughs> yeah. um, so Charlie Croker, played by Michael Caine or Mark Wahlberg, depending on the version you watch, um, he's putting a crack team together to steal four million dollars in gold bullion that's being held in Turin, Italy. Hence. The Italian job. <laughs> Charlie Croker comes out of prison and um, he's told to, uh, you know, go straight. You know, that's it now. But his friend gets killed by the mafia trying to pull off this Italian job. So he's like, nah, fuck that. One more job. One big job. One last job before I jack it in. So his job needs funding. So he goes to see Mr. Bridger in prison. Who's uh, If you haven't seen this, he's played by Noel Coward. And he's a very kind of... There's a lot of whimsy in it. So Noel Coward is like obsessed with the Queen and his jail cell is littered with pictures of the Queen. And every time he comes on screen, it's like you hear Royal Britannia play. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he's like a gangster. He funds the uh, the Italian job. And so Charlie puts the team together. They've got to take over an armoured car, take the gold off and get away. But they need the armoured car to stop, which armoured cars don't really stop until they get where they're going. So... They 1960s hack the traffic system in Turin by with magnets in computers. Mm, um, Cutting edge tech back then. Yeah, which fucks around with the uh, traffic lights, so causing loads of traffic, which allows them to take over the armored vehicle, get the gold, load it into three minis, a red, white, and blue one, all Britannia. Where do they get the minis from? Do they import them? <laughs> Um, I think they're taking with them. It's an interesting point, Liam, because Minnie refused to give them any cars to use in the film, so that's buy their own ones. And oh. being based in Italy, Fiat said, you can have it, all of our cars and as many as you want. <laughs> and they were like, no, we really want Minis. He was like, no, look, Fiat 500, it's just like a Mini. <laughs> so appara- <laughs> apparently the um, every other car you see is a Fiat, but the three main cars <laughs> is a Mini. And interestingly... Um, 
They Are the armored cars just armored Fiat five hundred. Yeah, you can only get about two people in them. <laughs> um, they also weren't allowed to close any roads because they they're driving around Turin like it's real. The authorities refused to allow them to do so. So the mafia really wanted the film made, and so went and closed the roads themselves, basically. <laughs> so yeah, so there's a brilliant car chase. Uh, well, it's not. Is it a car chase? Yeah. So. The three minis are getting away with the gold. They explain how minis are going to carry gold. They shed loads of weight so that they can fit the gold in. So they overcome all the odds, the police, the angry mafia. Are you um, describing the plot of the Blues Brothers again? <laughs> it's, it's really similar, isn't it? Yeah. So, the mafia in the film, are they played by actors or are they played by the real mafia who were there? Well, who knows? I don't. Is that why they wanted the film made? <laughs> they, they were getting royalties. Maybe. Could have been Liam. So the the big famous scene, and um, whilst whilst they're all escaping, the song um, "This Is Self Preservation Society" is playing. Iconic. But uh, they load the gold onto a bus. They escape to the Alps, and as they're going around a bend, they lose control, and the bus half of the bus hangs over the edge of the cliff face or the mountainside or whatever, and the gold is on the edge. That is hanging over the mountain. Everyone else is on the other side. One of them tries to move and it starts getting shaking. The gold is stuck and they're stuck and they're fucked. <laughs> or are they? Or are they? It ends there. It ends with Charlie Crow saying, Don't worry, I've got an idea. Busy ideas, man. That's but you a don't great know. Ending, isn't it? Yeah. So you don't know what happens. And um, yeah, so my point is crime doesn't pay. Is that your point? <laughs> <laughs> so don't so do it. This, if Benicio pockets this mm. sculpture that he wants to steal from work, he might end up on a cliff <laughs> hanging over the edge. Yeah. And if if he tries to grab the sculpture, he'll fall off. Exactly. You can't you can't discount that chain of events. <laughs> it was it was gold bullion, wasn't it? It, it was gold bullion, yeah. Is, is gold magnetic? I don't think it is, is it? Are you trying to solve the problem like Charlie Well, Croker? I was thinking he might, because you said about they use the magnets to hack into computers or something. He might have been thinking about putting the magnets on a stick. I've, I've, I'm really sorry, Pickles and fellow hosts. I've missed the best line of the film. You see if you can get, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll tee you up. I'll tee you up. So they're trying, they've got to work out how to get the gold out of the armoured vehicle. And so the explosive guy said, I can do it. So they're testing it on a van, line the doors with explosive just to blow the doors off. What does Charlie Croker say when the van explodes? You were only supposed to get rid of the doors. That's what he says, isn't it? Pretty sure that's right. Are you joking? And then Don Cheadle comes in and goes, they fucking nosed it up. (laughs) (laughs) We're in Barney Rubble. (laughs) (laughs) No, of course. And Liam, if you're going to say it, fucking say it. <laughs> you're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I'm going to discourage this uh, Benicio as well. I know that you're a collector, Benicio, but I'm going to discourage you from stealing to add to your collection. Although Benicio Del Toro in the Marvel Cinematic Universe He's happy to steal to add to that collection, isn't he? He doesn't give a fuck. But anyway, we're not canon here. So I'm going to tell you about The Feather Thief by Kirk Wallace Johnson, which is a book that I read recently. I got it from a book subscription. So it was a 
every month for a year, I got sent a different book that I'd never even heard of. Did you? They were um, trying to broaden my horizons. Did you give up because you couldn't keep up with one book a month? I'm still reading them now, and the subscription ended about. I think it ended at the end of 2020. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, The Feather Thief was one of these books, and it's a non-fiction book which tells the story of Edwin Rist, an American who became obsessed with fly tying, which is, have you heard of fly tying? Do you know what it is? It's when you get a fly and you tie it to someone and then go, and yeah. you've been fly tied. No, it's not. It's... Uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> is the art of making artificial flies for use in fly fishing. So, um, you know, the bait for fish to grab, basically. And they're usually made out of feathers and other equipment. Time to make an embarrassing uh, admission. I don't Mm. know what fly fishing is. I'm not entirely sure. I think angling, normally, you would use something like a worm or whatever, wouldn't you? But with fly fishing, you use a, a fly. When's the last time you angled your worm? <laughs> uh, oh, a long time ago, Carl. <laughs> I haven't angled my worm since I lost my helmet. <laughs> uh, yeah, so anyway, Edwin Rist, an American, became obsessed with fly tying, which is the art of making artificial flies for use in fly fishing. And what is fly so they fishing? Take, <laughs> so they take feathers and they uh, create, you know, intricate... Google it sometime, Liam, and you'll <laughs> see that the intricate little flies they make. Often they're, you know, they're amazing work. And Edwin Rist was amazing at it from a very young age. He became obsessed with it. I think he saw it on the telly one day and he was just like, that looks amazing. I'm going to start doing that. So he asked his dad to buy him some fly fishing... Um, fly tying magazines and stuff i think i don't think he even fished he just liked to tie these flies anyway like a lot of these art forms that wish they were sciences there's a fair bit of what sounds like bullshit to fly tying theory like there are all these different recipes for the feathers you need to use to make these flies to attract certain fish at certain times of day in certain conditions uh, I'm doing this from memory, and as usual, my memory's terrible. But in the book, I think they gave an example of there was one recipe that was for attracting a salmon that was hiding behind a rock. <laughs> There's a certain <laughs> recipe specifically to catch those fish. The, the rock's important. <laughs> yeah. You sent a nice sexy salmon with lipstick, little dress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, they're all, all of these recipes, uh, well, a lot of them were made up by Victorian, I think they were Victorian, certainly historical idiots (laughs) who basically seemed to love nothing more than hunting animals to extinction so a lot of these recipes contain beautiful feathers of really rare birds like birds of paradise and stuff and this was during the feather craze anyway so there was a period in history when uh, it was very fashionable for women to have hats with whole dead birds on top with wings outspread and they would be rare birds with beautiful plumage and the whole point of the hat was to show off look at this beautiful bird that i have got dead on my hat so it was like a sick time in history anyway but do you know they said um, that 
What's your what? dead bird, Lucinda? <laughs> <laughs> Mine's an ostrich. Exactly. <laughs> Imagine wearing an ostrich on your head. Fuck, that would be well heavy. Um, so this just added to the problem. They were, you know, hunting these rare birds purely for a fashion. Well, and a- another example used in the book is that one vendor sold a, I think it was a scarf, made from 1,000 hummingbird skins. Fuck, like, It's terrible, isn't it? Anyway, uh, yeah, so... I bet that looked nice, though. Uh... <laughs> hummingbirds are You're evil. You're going creature. straight to hell. <laughs> hummingbirds are, are amazing. Right. I think but... I read once that if we ate the equivalent of what a hummingbird needs to survive, like, for their size, they eat as many calories as... If we ate twenty thousand calories a day, Jesus, for their size, that's how much they need to eat. How does that translate into pizzas? <laughs> well, a Domino's pizza, a large Domino's pizza, most of them are like two thousand calories. So, have have so ten, 10 a day. large Domino's pizzas a day. I reckon if I pace myself, I might be able to do it. <laughs> Carl likes to eat a double decadence as well, so I imagine they're like two and a half thousand. <laughs> yeah. Some, ch- some chicken kickers, <laughs> cookies. It can be done. It can be done. I can be Look, a hummingbird. Listeners, other pizza joints are available. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so uh, <laughs> where was I? Oh, yeah. So these dickheads from the past who didn't, you know, conservation wasn't a massive thing then because they were dickheads. So, you know, you can't completely blame them for the way they acted. But... <laughs> Because of the way they acted, they killed off a shitload of birds. And this just added to the problem. So they were writing a load of recipes for, you know, this is a fly that will get trout on a Tuesday or whatever. <laughs> Which is, Bullshit. funnily enough, what I often go out to do, get trout on a Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so they wrote them, you know, there's no scientific basis necessarily. I'm probably going to get a lot of angry emails from fly tires. <laughs> um saying, you know, you need to use these rare bird feathers and stuff, but people still believe it today and they want to use those feathers. And it's like the real thing is obviously now illegal to deal in because some of those birds are extinct and some of them are on the verge of extinction. So, you know, if they allowed people to deal in them, we'd be willfully killing off species. There are these artificial substitutes, but they're not good enough for a lot of modern fly tires. Many of those will only be happy with the real thing. So, back to this book. To get the real thing, Edwin Rist broke into the National History Museum, Natural History Museum, in Tring. I didn't know there was one in Tring. In 2009. Where's Tring? Uh, just outside London. Oh. And stole hundreds of rare bird skins. I think it was 299 rare bird skins, he shoved them all into a suitcase and climbed out the window, many of which had been brought to the UK by Alfred Russell Wallace. Do you know who that is? No. No. I didn't know either, and I can't believe that we're not taught about him. He came up with the theory of evolution at the same time, completely independently of Charles Darwin. (laughs) I nearly... (laughs) I nearly thought, wait, Charles Darwin didn't come up with that. <laughs> it's like Dennis the Menace all over again. It is. Yeah. Have we spoken about exactly Dennis that, the Menace yeah. on the podcast? We did, yeah. I think we did, yeah. 
And yeah, so he and Charles Darwin both came up with Dennis the Menace at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) What's more more culturally important, Dennis the Menace or the Theory of Evolution? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I really don't think that you can have the Theory of Evolution without Dennis the Menace. (laughs) (laughs) Philosophers have grappled with that one for years, though, haven't they? (laughs) Um. So, yeah, it's a failing of the education system, in my opinion, that we don't learn about this guy. But, you know, many of these were brought back by him. They're, you know, so historically important. I'm not going to spoil everything that happened to this guy, uh, Edwin Rist, or how the crime was solved. But I will tell you how the fly tying community reacted, Benicio, when they heard about what he'd done. Now, obviously, as I said, they a lot of them want these rare bird feathers because they're rare and beautiful and they can't be bought anywhere else. And if they had a chance to grab some for themselves, a lot of them probably would. In fact, some of them did because he started selling them on fly tying websites and a lot of people bought them. But on the whole, these people who had looked up to Edwin for years because he was like a king in their community because he was so good at fly tying, They turned on him and they were disgusted and his name became a dirty word among the community that he'd once been worshipped by because they thought he was a proper dickhead for doing something so obviously wrong and bringing their community into disrepute. And he's in the book as well. He still doesn't seem to think that what he did was bad. He's under the impression that these specimens were, you know, gathering dust in the museum and they had no scientific value anymore, which actual scientists scientists don't agree with but you know how do you argue with someone who's been to the university of facebook you just can't and that is my point look after all that i've literally spent about 15 minutes talking and i'm so sorry liam you've got one minute to do your example but <laughs> yeah, that's not no way that happened. <laughs> it boils down to don't be a moby dickhead yeah do not steal you might think it's fine that no one's going to notice and as you say you think oh, there's loads of this shit at work. They're not, you know, appreciating it the way I would, but that's not the point. You might be right that they don't appreciate it like you would, but if you steal it, it's possible that everyone you ever loved and looked up to might reject you for turning into a piece of shit thief. Wanker. Well, I think <laughs> I think we're all in agreement today because my examples are pretty much kind of highlighting the fact that theft very rarely ends well in the music industry we've we've spoken a lot about this before but um you know it's quite easy to find examples of big hits that ended in lawsuits i can't think of many episodes where we haven't talked about a music lawsuit to be honest yeah it was your thing for a while wasn't it It was well it's it's making (laughs) um, it's coming back in a big way today so this time I mean, those times I wasn't even looking for them and they just cropped up. This time I thought I'd actually look for some of the biggest examples where the crime didn't pay. Um, But I thought before we get started, can either of you think of any? I thought the law, Anna. The The law law one. one. I was going to (laughs) say, can you think of any big lawsuits relating to music that we haven't talked about before? Uh, And you're suing P. Diddy and Maria Winans. Maria Wayans, Winans, Winans. Because they used, um, do you know the song "Ready or Not"? You You're can't right, have, yeah. You can't have. That's got a um, bit of Enya on it. Mm. Mm. Is it a famous Enya song? Uh, don't know. Really. Don't think so. No. But then um, this P Diddy produced song used it, thinking it was from that, 
and they didn't credit Enya. And Enya was like, yo, bitch, that's my chew, man. <laughs> that's how Enya speaks. <laughs> and so they has been to... working on his Enya impression for years. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> yeah. So they, uh, um, they put her on the song. I heard that uh, Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve, they didn't um, seek permission or anything to use that. Where's it from? And as a result, they were sued. I can't remember, but they were sued and they lost all royalties to that song forever, basically. <laughs> They've made no money from that song. And that's probably The Verve's biggest song, isn't and, it? And the, the song is that. Maybe the drugs don't work. <laughs> Yeah. The, yeah, the music video for Bittersweet Symphony is very, very street, similar yeah. to um, Massive Attack, Unfinished Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Bumping into people and stuff, yeah. So they didn't deserve any money from it because they stole it all. <laughs> Sorry, Deverve, you didn't deserve it. I, I tell you what, considering that was not prepped at all, I think you two did really well there, so thank you for that. <laughs> um, well, I had one more as well. Olivia Rodrigo was recently... Uh, she didn't... Um, I don't think they sued and I don't think any money changed hands, but there was a lot of outcry about one of her songs sounding a lot like a Paramore song. So in the end, she credited um, Paramore as a writer as well. Ah. Like a lot of your previous examples, basically, if you throw your weight around, then you get credited as a writer, don't you? (laughs) Did you know that Sting um, sang a bit of Money for Nothing that sounded a lot like... <laughs> and oh, where you, did you hear that? If you listen to last week's episode, you can hear the full story. <laughs> so, I'm going to talk about something that has been described as one of the first major plagiarism cases in music. Oh, Mozart, oh, Mozart versus... versus Beethoven. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not quite that early. So, this this happened in 1963, and this is the Beach Boys song "Surfing USA." Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, very naively set out to create a tribute to Chuck Berry's 1958 hit, Sweet Little Sixteen. And the vocal tune and delivery is very, very obviously based on that song, as is the lyrical content. Um, In Keith Badman's 2004... Oh, sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't not laugh when I said that. Do you think he's a bad man? I don't Keith know. Badman. <laughs> um, in Keith Badman's 2004 book... It's Badman. Badman. Beach Boys, is it Badman? Keith Badman. Badman. <laughs> Sorry, Keith. I'll stop butchering your name. In Keith Badman's 2004 book, The Beach Boys, Brian Wilson is quoted as saying, I was going with a girl called Judy Bowles, and her brother Jimmy was a surfer. He knew all the surfing spots. And I started humming the melody to Sweet Little Sixteen, and I got fascinated with the fact of doing it. And I thought to myself, God, what about trying to put surf lyrics to Sweet Little Sixteen's melody? The concept was about, they're doing this in this city, and they're doing that in that city. So I said to Jimmy, Hey, Jimmy. I want to do a song mentioning all the surf spots. So he gave me a list. And that's how Surfing USA came about, apparently. It sounds quite innocent. Like, obviously, is this before everyone sued the pants of each other? Well, maybe is this it... maybe this is the thing. Well, it was the first time, if it, if it really was the first major case, then he probably thought, what's the worst that could happen? Mm. Um, but unfortunately, us, Chuck Berry's publishers weren't quite as happy about this as Brian Wilson might have hoped. And Murray Wilson, who... Uh, oh, there's a lot to talk about Murray Wilson we're not going to go into it now but he is the Wilson's father so the Beach Boys if you don't know they're made up of the Wilson brothers um, one of their cousins and one of their friends and the dad managed the Wilson dad Murray Wilson managed the band 
Um, and he he was pressured into handing over the copyright before the single was released. So they never made a penny from that song. That's a, that's a real liberty because Chuck Berry stole his song from Marty McFly. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. When when he went back in time, um, ironically, when founding Beach Boy member Mike Love took legal action to gain songwriting credits on quite a few Beach Boy songs that he was previously denied. He wasn't able to get credit on Surfing USA because the copyright didn't actually belong to Brian Wilson, who he was suing. So that's oh. kind of interesting. And Chuck Berry has got form, actually, because another song in 1969, Come Together by the Beatles. Right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in sweet harmony. <laughs> yeah, that was originally written by the Beatles. Did you know that? <laughs> Um, so this was another big, big song that ultimately resulted in a lawsuit, and it was again involving Chuck Berry. So this time, the charge was appropriating a line from You Can't Catch Me, which was released in 1956. The first line in Come Together is, here come old Flaptop, he come grooving up slowly. And that was the bone of contention. It was very, very similar to uh, a line from You Can't Catch Me, which was something like, here come old Flaptop, he come moving up on me or something like that. And allegedly, Paul McCartney suggested that they should slow the track down while they were recording it to make it sound a bit less like that song. Um, but mm. that didn't help, and a lawsuit followed. If you listen to them side by side, they're not really that similar, but I suppose you can imagine if it was a bit faster, it's the same similar sort of chord sequence, and the lyrics are obviously quite similar. Um, but yeah, so there was a lawsuit, and in this case... Eventually, John Lennon settled out of court. And this is quite interesting. Instead of giving any money, he agreed that he would record free songs, uh, which the rights were owned by Big Seven Music, who published You Can't Catch Me. So they were like, you're John Lennon. You're really famous. Record free of our songs. We'll get loads of money for it, basically. Um, and this turned into a bit of a saga because he released two, one of which was uh, You Can't Catch Me. No, it wasn't. Was it? No, yeah, yeah, it was. It was. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, and he didn't release the third one. The reason the reason I got confused there is because the album he released it on, I think this is right, also, funnily enough, included the other song we were just talking about um, that the Beach Boys ripped off, uh, Sweet mm. Little Sixteen. And John, Le John, John Legend, John Lennon did a version of that as well. <laughs> ah. um, but anyway, he released two, two of the songs, but he didn't release the third one while he was alive. It was released later after he died, but it wasn't released while he was alive. So he was sued again for breach of contract. Um, but it didn't end there. Sorry, I know this is a long story, <laughs> but it is really interesting. So the publisher representing Big Seven Music, he was a bloke called Morris Levy, who, by all accounts, he was a bit of a bastard. So he was like involved with organized crime. He was suspected of extortion. He was investigated by the FBI and everything. And he was so angered by, by John Lennon that he released an album of John Lennon's material without his permission, which resulted in another lawsuit, which John <laughs> Lennon won and actually made back quite a bit more money than he previously lost. Mm. So long story short, crime doesn't pay, especially if you're stealing from Chuck Berry. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny because, as I say, I'd normally paraphrase these problems, and this one was quite long, so this one wasn't uh, completely paraphrased, but there was a bit that I cut out. He said, by the way, I work at Chuck Berry's offices. <laughs> <laughs> so you've hit the nail on the head there, Liam. What's your problem? There's no use trying to pretend you haven't got one. 
The three of us are here to lend a friendly ear and help you out with all that strife that's lately marked your life. Why not divulge it? You never know, we may have tips that help you solve it. We know it's unlikely, but it's an impossibility if you don't share your problem. So, problem two. Last month, I had my 13th birthday. Oh, wait a minute. My voice is a bit too deep for this, isn't it? I think uh, (laughs) I hit puberty when I was about 17, so... Last month, I had my 13th birthday, and practically overnight, I realised that the world is a cold and unfair place, and no one understands me. I'm feeling feelings I've never felt before, and none of them are positive. What am I supposed to do with all this angst, and how come I'm the first person ever to have felt it? Were you two particularly angsty teenagers? I don't think so, I was angsty. I've always been a bit too happy-go-lucky to be angsty. You're so angsty, Liam, my God. (laughs) (laughs) We call you angsty Liam behind your back. I just always always feel like things are going to be all right, you know. There's no room in my head. Oh, there we go. Bob Marley's coming in. (laughs) Yeah, we just say every little thing. Every little thing. I did listen to a lot of Bob Marley growing up. Maybe that was it. But (laughs) yeah, there's, there's never really been any room in my head for, you know, worrying about stuff like that. Let's call this person Bob then. Oh, after your after your intro, oh, little is it little Timmy that got stuck down a well in the Simpsons? Oh yeah. <laughs> All right, little Bobby, little we'll meet Bobby. halfway. Well, I'm going to go first, and I'm going to keep it as quick as possible because I took about, as I said, I took about 15 minutes of the first one, and we time ourselves to try and keep these episodes down to less than two hours. So, I wish I could talk about the Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger, since Holden Caulfield is like the king of angst. And if you ask people to think of an angsty uh, book character, that's probably the one most people would name. But I've already spoken about Catcher in the Riot in a previous episode, so I'm not going to do that again. You could also read any amount of young adult fiction, because basically young adult fiction is just dripping with pathetic and annoying whiners. You could read The Hunger Games, Twilight, anything like that. It's basically just... Um, teenage girls saying, my life is so hard being a teenage girl. I look so average, but I'm also beautiful because two handsome teenage boys are fighting over me. That, that, that comes straight from Aaron's diary from when he was 16. <laughs> <laughs> that does, actually. <laughs> and uh, another thing that's really angsty is uh, Less Than Zero by Brett Easton Ellis. I really loved that one back, back when I was an angsty teenager. So you could try that, little Bobby. But The main thing I'm going to talk about is On the Road by Jack Kerouac. Now, in that, Sal Paradise is a boring idiot devoid of any personality. And he meets a bloke called Dean Moriarty and basically falls in love with him and goes on some road trips with him. And I can't really remember what happened because I read it ages ago, but it was like I spoke about last week, how, you know, there are classics that people absolutely fucking love. And you go, all right, all right, and yeah, I've got to read that because people love it. But when I read it, I was so disappointed. An extract of my Instagram review that I wrote from 2019 when I read it, I called it boring, shallow, insubstantial drivel with characters in a permanent state of arrested development and concepts that might be thought deep by 12-year-olds, hipsters, 
or that fearful combination of the two 12-year-old hipsters. (laughs) (laughs) So, as you can tell, I liked it. But what I do remember about it is it's just so angsty. So, Little Bobby, basically what I'm saying is feed that angst monster inside you. You're not going to be a teenager for long. You know, you're going through changes and stuff. I'm going through changes. I hope that's Liam's example. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um... Just, you know, feed that angst monster and read some angsty teenage literature and just enjoy it. And then one day you'll grow out of it. And I mean, On the Road by Jack Kerouac is considered one of the best examples of beat literature, which is characterized by sexual liberation, experimentation with drugs, rejection of economic materialism. So, you know, basically sticking it to the man and not doing your homework. So... You could read edit, read any of the beat writers, really. So that's not my example because I'm going a bit more left field again now. And instead of recommending a song, I'm going to recommend an entire genre, if you can imagine such a thing. But I'm going to do it in a classic Liam way that takes about 20 minutes. So, oh fuck! <laughs> <laughs> when I first when I first read through this problem. I was I, I did think back to my own kind of childhood and, and while I wasn't very angsty myself, I did enjoy listening to some angsty music. Um and there was a lot of I don't know what the correct term for it it was, but I'm gonna call it like maybe post punk or skate punk. I'm thinking about bands like, you know, Blink one eight two, Sum forty one, where Isn't it um pop punk? Pop punk, yeah, that's another one. I think I think that's just, that's kind of a very similar genre, isn't it? Yeah. It could be that. Mm. Um other. And I remember listening to that music and really enjoying it. And I was thinking, oh, I could recommend kind of this sort of music. And then I thought, hang on a minute. Why don't I follow this to its logical conclusion? And rather than talking about post-punk, talk about actual punk. So this is what we're going to explore here. So in the 70s, around the mid-70s, this this kind of really hit the mainstream. And people really started properly expressing their unhappiness through the medium of music to mainstream audiences. I mean, it's generally agreed that punk was around before the mid-70s, but it was more of an underground culture. So it started at some point in the late 60s. There were a lot of groups that people now call proto-punk. Um, people like uh, Lou, Reed and the Velvet. <laughs> Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground, Iggy Pop and the Stooges, um, who were around in like the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and they, they, they kind of paved the way for punk, but their music isn't quite the same. Um, is, is the general gist of it. Um, but around 1975 or 1976, I should say, um, punk really hit the mainstream with two huge acts, one in the US and one in the UK, the Ramones in the US and the Sex Pistols in the UK. And I was quite surprised when I heard this because obviously I know who the Sex Pistols are, but I didn't, I didn't think they were, you know, that influential. But according to everything you read online, they are one of the... Mm biggest kind of you know punk bands since they kind yeah. of started things god save the queen all that exactly so mm. uh, we'll come to that in a sec and their background is actually quite interesting in itself it starts with a, a british businessman named malcolm mclaren who owned a, a record slash clothing shop in chelsea and he was assisted in the clothing department by a lady you might have heard of named vivian westwood And her name would later be synonymous with kind of punk and new wave fashion. I didn't know that about Vivian Westwood. I didn't didn't know much about her, to be honest. I've got a Vivian Westwood cake slice. 
<laughs> is it is it very punk it's punky, punky. <laughs> it does not cut any cakes because it just will not no, it refuses <laughs> <laughs> so, so the two of them went to new york where mclaren oh, managed it's vera wang sorry <laughs> close it was the v's wasn't it, it was. you heard a v and you were like close down yep. v's again <laughs> so when they were in new york mclaren managed this proto-punk band called the new york dolls for a brief period and they returned to london after that in 1974 and a local three-piece punk band known as the strand were very excited to meet him because he he'd managed this the new york dolls in america and they're like oh we love them yeah we want to meet you can you manage us and he accepted eventually. They asked him a few times and he finally accepted. And he was quite brutal at first. He got rid of their guitarist, a bloke called Wally Nightingale, immediately because he didn't fit the image. Um, and You mean ev- Wally didn't fit <laughs> the punk scene? Everyone thinks it's because he had these like pretty large glasses and they were like, you are not <laughs> punk, get out. Stripey jumper. <laughs> Everyone's looking for it him everywhere. Wally. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, he, he proceeded, McLaren proceeded to recruit the rest of the band members from people that he found in his shop. So Glenn Matlock was a, a shop assistant who was brought in on guitar. And John Lydon, or Johnny Rotten, as he's kind of more popularly known, was just a customer of the store who came in one day. And they were like, yeah, he looks good. He fits the image. And by that point, the shop's clothing had involved a lot of S&M and fetish wear. So they renamed it to Sex. And the band's name, the Sex Pistols, derived from there. Mm. So, anyway, mm. they yeah they caused quite a bit of a stir at the time. They'd never really been much like it in the mainstream media in the UK. Um, Carl, you're talking about "God Save the Queen." That was their second single released in 1977, and that was them, you know, obviously lashing out at the glorification of the monarchy and the disparity in wealth when compared with the working class. And pretty much all radio stations, even the independent ones, flat out refused to play it. They were like, "You can't say that about the Queen. We're not playing that." So she ain't no human being. <laughs> She's a runner bean. Um, <laughs> is this? No, that's just oh. what I said. I'm stupid. <laughs> um, <laughs> other <laughs> classic punk acts of the era include uh, The Clash, obviously, you'll have heard of. And although it came a bit later in 1979, The Clash's 10th single, London Calling, points out a lot of things that lyricist Joe Strummer thought were wrong with the world. And this one actually led to some real positive change. So in London Calling, he sings, London is drowning and I live by the river. And he was, of course, referring to the genuine flood risk that London has always faced and had always faced up till that point. And You're not about to say, are you, that they built the Thames Barrier because of London Calling? <laughs> well, it's Someone funny you to should that. say that. <laughs> I think you said Someone that. listened to that and went, good point. In he lives by the river. In 1982, three years later, the Thames Barrier was installed. And the fact that it was already under construction when he wrote the song is completely irrelevant. (laughs) So, you know, there you have it. Raise your voice, speak out, listen to some punk music, and you you could make a real positive impact to the flood risk in your local area. (laughs) Oh, that was a long walk for a small drink drink of water, Liam. (laughs) Literally water. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's interesting that you should mention angsty teen literature, Aaron, because that often is translated into angsty teen cinema. And I'm going to talk about Twilight, which um, I would say is probably the angst- angstiest of teen movies. Yeah. In terms of, um, 
I'd never seen that level of angst and I was actually quite drawn to it when I first watched it because I've always been quite cynical about that stuff. Mm, yeah. Like proper angsty young adult stuff. But I, I wanted to watch it again as soon as I'd finished it because I was like, I- I've never experienced this level of angst. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I owe a shout out to um, twilightlexicon.com which um, has written down an entire timeline of all the films <laughs> to that the point like something from the dark web twilightlexicon.com it, yeah it's weird isn't it yeah. but um, shout out to those guys um, so twilight the series is a 2008 2012 films come out um, who wrote the books Aaron? Susan Suzanne Mayer Mayer yeah that's it Mayer Mayer um, yeah. I thought it was Stephanie like... Mayer Stephanie Mayer Stephanie we, Mayer we, we got mixed up didn't we Carl because of yeah. Suzanne Collins who wrote Hunger, Hunger Games. Games yeah there you go imagine if they <laughs> what morphed I mean. into one super angsty teen novel <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the Hunger Twilights, the Twilight, the Twilight could have gone with the Twilight Games. games yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fuck. It'd just be baseball, which they seem to play in Twilight for some reason. Yeah. So, did you know the ti- the Twilight timeline stretches between 2500 BC and 2007? <laughs> now, if you're scrolling through the timeline, you probably got you know. 20 entries for years between 2500 BC and 2005. Yeah. That impresses me, to be honest. One bullet point per entry per year that something happened. Get to 2005, and there's 21 entries between January and March. (laughs) (laughs) This seems to be... So you're saying it's not a rich and detailed history? Well, no, I'm saying that vampire lore really kicks off in 2005. (laughs) (laughs) This is when things start happening. Even though the real vampire lore, that you know, the the one that everyone basically is canon, yeah, Buffy the Vampire Slayer <laughs> began in 1999. So you'd expect quite a lot of book, bullet points around then. Yeah, nothing, no, but nothing, nothing. Didn't even say. <laughs> Not Buff- even a mention of Buffy's Buffy. born. Yeah. <laughs> um. So anyway, I'll get like. And when I when I when I thought oh I've got to use Twilight because Belly, Bella is the Bellia, <laughs> Bella is the angstiest team going. Yeah. I started thinking she might have been I don't know if I'm using the right terminology catfished or maybe groomed. Groomed. Groomed is probably the right word because like it starts with she meets Edward on 18th of January 2005. Edward says to her, "Your blood is like heroin to me." Yeah. And then on the it's sec- all pretty fucking weird. Yeah. Second of March, Edward spends a night in Bella's room without her knowing. Uh, Like, Jesus Christ. Um, You know, things really hot up on the 5th of March when um, Bella meets Jacob for the first time. And obviously Jacob forms a drug drug triangle, love triangle with Edward and Bella. The heroin (laughs) drug drug triangle. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Four days later, um, Bella and Edward are official as a couple. And then on the 13th, which is a Sunday, Edward introduces Bella to his family. <laughs> and they have the baseball game. And then Bella tells her father she's leaving Forks, which is the town they're in. Um, so, you know, we've gone from 18th of January, they meet, to the 9th, 13th of March, she's leaving the whole town with him. So where does Cedric Diggory fit into the Twilight universe? I never understood that. <laughs> <laughs> Get, well, when he gets killed by the Death Eaters. Hmm. No, by Voldemort. Oh, they bring him back as a vampire. They bring right. him back as a vampire. Yeah, that's the <laughs> origin story of Twilight. That's what happens in 2500 BC. <laughs> <laughs> when so, Harry Potter's set. 
three days after um, she decides to leave with Edward, it says um, James tricks Bella into running away with him. Bella nearly dies, and Edward is forced to drink her blood to save her from becoming a vampire. On the 18th, two days later, Friday, Bella awakens in hospital with multiple injuries. Um, so, like, the first three months of their courtship is being fucking eventful, to say the least. We fast forward to September, and um, on the 13th of um, September is Bella's 18th birthday. They have a party at the Cullens. Bella cuts her arm and causes a riot. <laughs> It's the heroine again, isn't it? <laughs> Edward takes her home and stays with her through the night. I bet you did, Edward. <laughs> and right, so you go from that to on the 14th, Edward is distant and refuses to stay with Better at night. On the 15th, Edward avoids Better and Better is... <laughs> this is the angstiest, angstiest thing in the whole series. On the 14th, sorry, the 15th of September, Thursday, Edward avoids Bella and Bella works on her scrapbook. <laughs> <laughs> Can, can we do a feature-length episode of Carl reacting to the Twilight lore? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm nearly done anyway, but... Twilight, I think it was the second one. It's the second one where he moves away. Yeah, this is New Moon, yeah. And she's like, she's absol- having yeah, an well, absolute well, meltdown. On the 16th of September, Edward's still Bell. Edward tells Bella that he and his family are leaving Forks and Bella forever. Bella goes into some sort of shop. A tracking party finds Bella nearly comatose. <laughs> <laughs> I t- I just did not approve of the second one. This is the first time that I felt that kind of old man anger at mm. young person stuff. <laughs> because I was just like... Old man yells is- at cloud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was. I was like, this is so inappropriate. Mm. Teaching teenage girls who love Twilight that this is the way to react when you're boyfriend dumps you basically you mean she like tombstones doesn't she she jumps off a cliff to try and get his attention spending the 16th of um september to december (laughs) three months better exists in a zombie-like state only doing the bare minimum (laughs) needed to really survive (laughs) fucking hell Hmm. absolutely ridiculous to to be fair you weren't that old either were you so it's just no exactly standard outrage (laughs) yeah yeah we were like 20 at the time it was old man because I was like, "What about the teenage girls? <laughs> Won't someone think of the children?" <laughs> so um, uh, after this point, I couldn't bring myself to read any more Twilight timeline. <laughs> so I skipped forward to the end, and um, on the first of January two thousand seven, they get married, Edward and Bella. So this is two years later. Bella lowers her mind shield and allows Edward to read it for the first time. How is her mind shield? <laughs> How did she develop her mind shield? I think things would have gone a lot easier if she didn't have a mind shield up on the first day. It would read her mind and thought, you know what? No. Go with Jacob, the werewolf. Yeah. Honestly, you can have her because she is absolutely <laughs> far too much work. Yeah. So I think you'll find if you watch this... Um, little Bobby, that um, you, you're you not feeling these things yourself. It's not just you. Um, and you'll probably realise that they're not as bad as they could be if there are werewolves and vampires involved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you, lucky stars, that it's only puberty that you've got to deal with. <laughs> Your problems don't go back to 2500 BC. <laughs> what this problem, what it reminded me of that you might both be familiar with is do you remember um 
the Harry Enfield character, Kevin. Yeah. Of Kevin, Kevin and oh, Perry yeah. fame, Boy, obviously. There was the first episode of Harry Enfield and Chums, I think, is when Kevin turns 13. Yeah. <laughs> and as a, as a 12-year-old, just before midnight, he's oh, jumping oh, yeah, up and down on the chairs. Yeah. He's all excited. He's I like, can't wait for my birthday. <laughs> Thank you, and, mother. Thank you, father. I don't want to do, yeah. yeah. And then <laughs> just transforms. Oh, I hate you. so unfair. <laughs> that is, yeah, that is a great shout. <laughs> I love Harry Enfield. Can you help me with my problem? I think that it might be a long shot. My problem is you see that no one believes that I am not a robot. Executing procedure. Problem solving. Right, yeah, let's go. I'm excited about next episode because I've used my 1001 songs you must hear before you die book for the first time <laughs> all right well let's get the third problem out of the way quickly <laughs> so we can get onto it. <laughs> the other day i tripped over because i just tied my own feet together by their shoelaces after i'd picked myself up off the ground something hit me that probably should have hit me years ago i am stupid i'm so stupid i tried to put my m&ms in alphabetical order <laughs> can you recommend some art that will make me more cleverer. Do you two ever feel stupid? I often think I don't. I, well, to be fair, I don't feel stupid necessarily, but quite often I think I'm not well read enough. Like I would like to be one of those people that's very impressive and well read and stuff. And um, I often think you're not one of those people, and you need to work on it. But I've never done any work on it, so I, <laughs> here I, I am. I feel the same. <laughs> I I always feel like well. One of my biggest problems, in my head at least, is that I cannot express myself. Even <laughs> even when I'm trying to express that I cannot express myself, I don't really do a great job of it. <laughs> <laughs> Liam, you should sing uh, Liam, I don't know what you're trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hear you, Aaron, but then you also are very well read. Like If you think of the average person book reading, this isn't a clever sentence, Carlos, Carlos, trouble expressing himself as well. <laughs> um, maybe it's the people you surround yourself with make you feel stupider. Well, when stupider. I'm hanging out with people like you and Liam, Carl, I'm yeah. going to feel stupid, aren't I? Well, if if we had to rank, <laughs> because because <laughs> I'd have to be stupid to be friends really? with you. <laughs> I saw a quote that I really liked, and I can't remember who it was attributed to, but it was something along the line. I'm going to have to paraphrase because I can't remember it word for word. It's something along the lines of, "If you ever find that you're the smartest person in the room, then you need to find another room." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably right. Mm, that's good. Yeah. So, uh, what should we call this person? Who's very clever, or who is not very clever? <laughs> oh, Harry and Lloyd, <laughs> Dumb and Dumber. They, uh... <laughs> Let's call him uh, Lloyd. I can help Lloyd out. So, to be honest, I'm not really a fan of labelling people as stupid in general, because I think I think we I think we all have moments, like we've just mentioned, where we like we don't think properly or we do stupid things, but. I don't think that means we should like write ourselves off as unsalvageable morons, you know. But mm. even if that isn't true, <laughs> but you, Lloyd, <laughs> are unsalvageable. <laughs> but what I was going to say was, even if that isn't true, and it is, you are an unsalvageable moron. Maybe that's not so bad. Are either of you familiar with Neil Innes? 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Old Neil, yeah. Um, no, I don't know if I'm butchering his last name or not, uh, but that was what I got from the uh, Wikipedia phonetic pronunciation. Um, <laughs> he was an English comedian and musician. He's dead now, but uh, he wasn't when he was alive. Among <laughs> um, um, <laughs> a few other <laughs> adventures. <laughs> You're so good at facts, Liam. <laughs> I know. Um, among a few other adventures, he did a lot of work with. He did a lot of work with Monty Python who you've probably heard of. If you're familiar with uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, he wrote some of the original songs in it, like Brave Sir Robin and Knights of the Round Table. Um, Mm. Brave Sir Robin is a personal favourite of mine. There was also a musical documentary film made about him in 2008 called The Seventh Python. So, you know, this isn't just something that he was like, oh, yeah, I was working with Monty Python. They really considered him as like a member of the group and all that. Um, Anyway. In 1973, Neil Innes released a song called How Sweet to Be an Idiot from the album of the same name. And this song is a, it's a nice little ditty about how nice it must be to be dim. Uh, so here's a, here's a lyric for you. How sweet to be an idiot and dip my brain in joy. Children laughing at my back with no fear of attack, as much retaliation as a toy. And then later he says, I tiptoe down the street smile at everyone i meet it's a really nice little song doesn't it sound lovely mm. and it's, mm. it's really nicely instrumented it's just him and like this nice little piano and yeah there's a bit in the middle that's like talks about asylums and stuff and it gets a bit dark but you can just kind of skip that part so it's, it's a really nice song and it would be a little bit remiss of me not to mention that uh there was a lawsuit involved in this song um so this occurred when oh liam and his lawsuits <laughs> musical <laughs> lawsuits <laughs> <laughs> Attorney at Musical Law. Um, So this (laughs) occurred when Oasis released their single Whatever in 1994, which I'm assuming you know. Yeah. Whatever, whatever, we're meant to be together. Whatever you want, whatever Um, you like. So whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever actually has exactly the same tune. So Neil Innes' song goes, how sweet to be an idiot and whatever goes I'm free to be whatever I um, and that was the basis on which they were sued and Neil Innes has a credit on that song whatever by Oasis Ooh. of course do they get money as well as a credit on the song I'll be pissed off if I just thought alright you can be a credit on it yeah I'm pretty sure they get royalties for the, yeah for... I would imagine that that entitles you to a certain amount of royalties yeah. I imagine the point of the Neil Innes song is this ignorance is bliss and if you really are an idiot which I don't think you are, by the way, Lloyd. But if you are, then just do you. And as long as you're happy, that's all that matters, surely. Yeah, that's fair enough, Liam. That's not bad mm. advice. Um, the obvious film example of this is Forrest Gump, 1994, directed by Rob, Robert Zemeckis. Um, I love this film. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, it's great. I was oh. going to suggest Forrest as the name, but I'm glad I didn't. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you didn't. Forrest, is, he's born with like a disability that makes him... Hard, it makes him. He's diff, he finds it difficult to understand things going on around him and express himself and communicate. And he can't walk, so he's got like braces on his legs. And then like there's a the most famous scene is where he um he's running away from bullies and he breaks mm. the braces off and he runs away and then he becomes like a brilliant runner. He goes, I ran everywhere because like you know he's mm. just appreciating being able to run. So he, he and that kind of starts his journey actually when he's got the braces on he can't walk funny 
and um, Elvis Presley is in his mum's guest house, and he go, and he's like playing a little song, and he's going, "Do that, do that crazy walk you just did do," and he um, in basically invents Elvis Presley's signature dance where he like shakes his legs. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But it I'm, was confusing watching this as a kid because yeah. I, I might have been a stupid kid. I'm not sure, but <laughs> I was watching it thinking, how much of this stuff like. Like when they show the footage where they've spliced him in of yeah. like real historical yeah. events. Yeah. How did they do that? Was he actually there? Yeah, I I like, is this a true story? <laughs> just, as a kid, just so confused. Well, it's the same, yeah. Tom Hanks has been preparing for that role since the 60s. <laughs> yeah. So then after he regains the use of his legs, he's, um, he becomes an all-American football player and gets to meet the president, JFK. He meets his president a few times. Is that one where he drinks all the Dr. Pepper and he goes, how does it feel to be an All-American? And he goes, I need to pay for the president. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, he fights in Vietnam and he saves um, a lot of his soldiers while he gets injured in the process. Um, and he gets a Congressional Medal of Honor. There's a really sweet bit where um, in Vietnam, he thinks they're just looking for one guy called Charlie because um, they called the Viet Cong Charlie, didn't they? Hmm. So he yeah, should, I remember, he's, yeah. he's like, we look for Charlie everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, after after he gets injured and the Vietnam War's over, he um, becomes a ping pong player and he visits mm-hmm. the land of China and he plays ping pong for the US. Again, meeting the president. When he gets back, he's on the um, he's on TV on a. I'm trying to remember the name of the talk show. It's like a famous talk show host, and John Lennon's on there, and a friend of the show. We talked about John Lennon previously. Yeah, um, he inspires John Lennon's lyrics to imagine, because he goes, <laughs> "In China, they don't have very much." He goes, "No possessions," and then he goes, "And they don't believe in God." He goes, "No religion too." <laughs> <laughs> um, he's responsible for uncovering the Watergate scandal. When he goes for his run, so when Jenny leaves him, he just starts running. Remember that bit? He goes, I was, yeah. I just started running and he runs across all America. Grows a big beard, doesn't he? He does. And then um, on his way, people ask him to help him with problems and like he um, he runs through like poo or shit and uh, you hear a big squelch and a guy, a guy say to him, I just can't think of a good idea for a bumper sticker. And he goes, oh, you just ran through a huge pile of shit. He goes, it happens. And then the, sh- <laughs> the shit happens. Bumper sticker is born. <laughs> and then a similar thing, He, um, a guy can't think of a good idea for a T-shirt. So he and Forrest Gump uses a T-shirt to wipe his muddy face and there's a smiley face on it. And then the like, the yellow smiley face is invented. <laughs> he founds Bubba Gump Shrimp. And at the end, despite the shit, that Jenny put him through. He's got a lovely, clever little boy called Baby Forest, played by Haley Joel Osment, who grew up to see dead people. Ah, oh, <laughs> <I didn't know. laughs> poor sod. You know what a rich and brilliant life. Mm. And he's, you know, by his own admission, he's not a smart man, but he managed to have a great life and experienced a lot of things. So I don't think it matters how clever you are. You know, just use be be who you are just like Forrest people would say to Forrest are you stupid or something and he would say stupid is as stupid does I don't know what that means exactly, but... <laughs> <laughs> that, that idea of um, of a character who 
who lived through lots of historical moments. I think it's been used a few times, hasn't it? Because there's um, there's that book, The Hundred-Year-Old Man Who Climbed Out the Window and Disappeared, mm. is it called? Um, I remember reading that, and that was like part, I was about to say biography. It's not true, obviously, but it kind of talks a lot about his life as he's going through his adventure. And and like he, it turned out that he was working on uh, like the nuclear bomb and stuff like that. And he met Stalin mm. and things like that. And, and I think it's been used a few times. It's quite, it's quite interesting. I quite enjoy those yeah. stories. Well, I really liked um, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, the book. Um, I think the film got panned, but mm. the book... It was really clever because, like, he, the concept of the book is that in secret, as well as being, you know, the historical figure that we know, behind the scenes, Abraham Lincoln was hunting vampires. <laughs> and he weaves it in and out of real historical events. Like, you know, I couldn't attend that event because I had to, you know, <laughs> I was injured from my vampire hunt or whatever. I can't remember exactly. You that know. is brilliant, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's like it's so cleverly done, and when it is well done, like it was in Forrest Gump and stuff like that, it does become like a um, something that makes the story better, doesn't it? Because you go, mm. "Oh, they're so clever! You've like worked that into the story." Yeah, yeah. And to be honest, you've both made me feel quite bad because what you're basically saying is, even if you are stupid. If you're happy, it doesn't matter. And you're about to say, don't be so fucking stupid. And I'm about to actually answer their question and recommend some art that might make them cleverer. (laughs) (laughs) What a bastard. Yeah, what an arsehole. So (laughs) here it goes, Lloyd. (laughs) So um, last week, obviously, I talked about, you know, how big, heavy classics... And reading stuff like Ulysses makes some people feel very clever, so you could try that. Um, but I'm not—I won't recommend that, to be honest, Lloyd. Because, as I said last week, if you read a load of them and start bragging about how much you understood Ulysses, you're going to sound like a twat. So that's not my recommendation. Um, as I said earlier, I'm always very impressed when people seem to like know a lot about a broad range of subjects because they seem so well read basically they've just they seem to have read a shitload of books on a shitload of subjects they're not necessarily experts in one field it's just they're very well read they've got a variety of knowledge so i'm going to you know my recommendation basically is that you read a load of non-fiction books from just random areas of life random subjects and if you read a load of books from a wide range of subjects you'll broaden your horizons and and this is where i'm out of order the capacity of your brain (laughs) 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 so um obviously we've talked probably three or four times now about factfulness by hans rosling one of my favorite non-fiction books i've ever read just amazing yeah really good and Earlier this episode, I recommended a non-fiction book, The Feather, Fe- <laughs> the Feather Thief by Kirk Wallace Johnson. I'll mention that today. Apparently, I was going through my Goodreads read list to see what non-fiction books I've really loved because, as we've discussed a million times, uh, my memory is terrible. So I was trying to refresh my memory. And on there is A Little History of Philosophy by Nigel Warburton, which I rated four stars. And even reading that, 
I couldn't remember reading it. Like, <laughs> is that by Nigel was... Warburton, the famous baker? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he wrote it on a bit of bread, <laughs> <laughs> which might be why I don't remember it because I must have eaten the bread afterwards. <laughs> um, I, I was going to say I can recommend some non-fiction books as well, but have you got more to say? Yeah, I've got shitloads more. Shut the fuck <laughs> up. Um, <laughs> um, uh, John Runson, all of John Runson's books are amazing. They're very light, so it's not heavy. So even if you are a little bit stupid, Lloyd, you will get them. Uh, so you've been publicly shamed. I've talked about that on the podcast before. Uh, the Psychopath Test, great. But as I say, I've talked about all of those things before, or I don't remember reading them like a little history of philosophy. So one that I do remember reading, and again, one of my favorite nonfiction books ever, is The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot. It's about a woman called Henrietta Lacks and the immortal cell line, HeLa, which was taken from her cervical cancer cells in 1951. And I believe those cells are still alive today and still contributing to cancer research. Amazing book, and it's been adapted into a film starring Oprah Winfrey, which I haven't seen. And uh, another one, uh, again, I just thought it was amazing. The Big Short by Michael Lewis. It's about the housing bubble, which caused the financial crash of the 2000s. Fantastic book, really um, interesting. And you don't have to be a finance expert to get it. But at the end of it, you'll feel like a finance expert. And again, it was adapted into a film starring Christian Bale, Steve Carell, Ryan Gosling, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, Selena Gomez. Uh, Anthony Bourdain, brilliant book, and that's as many non-fiction books as I can remember reading. <laughs> what were yours, Liam? What are your favourite non-fiction books? I've got a couple. So, Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari, which is I've heard so much about it that. Is yeah, really, 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 yeah. really good. It's it's like a history of humankind, and there's also quite a lot of kind mm. of philosophy in it and uh, ideas about where we might be heading in the future. Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, which is basically a history of sleep science and all the kind of latest theories and uh, or things we know about what sleep actually does, what dreams are about and that sort of thing. And I mean, I don't know, I, th I think that book changed my life. My wife will probably disagree with you. She'll say I always slept all the time anyway. But <laughs> it's one of those things where I read it and I was like, oh, my God, this is something I've been like completely underestimating the importance of my entire life. I've never life. slept before. Why have I never slept? <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of others, but mm. you've mentioned quite a few that, that I've read, so that's probably it for now. So, Lloyd, we're running out of time, so I'll cut us off there, but we've given you a shitload of non-fiction books there if you do want to expand your horizons, but you don't necessarily need to, because as Liam and Carl told you, it's not all that bad being a little bit stupid <laughs> we are all a little bit stupid sometimes um so lads we forgot to do this last oh, week we did, we? and our oh. listeners have been complaining ever since we've got a level of outrage from our listeners that has only been equaled by when jürgen was kicked off of bake-off earlier this year <laughs> Spoiler. Did you not know that, Carl? I did not, you not know caught that. Up? No. Oh fuck. no! That's a proper, <laughs> fuck, proper spoiler as well. <laughs> My wife has moved out. I haven't watched it. <laughs> oh, Carl, I'm so sorry. That oh. is an outrage. I'm not watching that anyway. <laughs> fuck it. But anyway, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Carl. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs>
shake this for Hollywood. Yeah. Shall we? I'm sorry, I feel really bad now. Shall we satisfy the outraged listeners then and actually recommend something from last week and this week? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so I'll finish my sentence then. So we didn't do it last week, but we're going to do it this week. We normally recommend if you're only going to listen to or read or watch one thing from this episode, what would it be? But this week we're going to say one thing from this week and one thing from last week. Quick as we can, Liam, go. Right. So so one thing from last week. You know what? Why don't you watch Dexter's Lab? Bloody love Dexter's lab. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And quick as you can, Liam, go. Um, well, one... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. one thing. For... Sorry, I, I'm just reading through what I've suggested this week. One thing from this week. Uh, oh, dear. Oh, rah, rah, rah. Um, yeah, all right. How sweet to be an idiot by Neil Winners because it's a nice little song. Carl? I'm going to go Dread from last week. And this week, it has to be Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump is great. Uh, last week, I didn't actually recommend any art that I like. Uh, <laughs> I talked about Wattpad and I said it was full of shit <laughs> writing and I talked about Ulysses and slagged that off for a whole problem <laughs> and, and then I talked about The Rosie Project which to be fair I haven't even read my wife's read it and she said it was really good so for the sake of recommending something I will recommend The Rosie Project by Graham Simpson and this week without question I mean as I said all of the non-fiction books that I recommended are like among my favourite non-fiction books that I've ever read. So they're all brilliant, but because it's so fresh in my memory, The Feather Thief by Kirk Wallace Johnson is just a must-read. I I hadn't even heard of it. I never knew it existed until I received it from this book subscription, and I fucking loved it. It was a real page-turner. I finished it in uh, a month. which is startlingly fast for me (laughs) so that's all we've got time for today check out the episode notes or agonyartpodcast.com to find links to all the media we mentioned today and for a link to the Agony Art Spotify playlist where you can listen to all the songs if you've got a problem you'd like us to attempt to solve you can reach us on our group instagram and twitter accounts at agony art podcast or on the submissions page on our website now we're reaching the end of series one two uh, <laughs> reaching the end of series two rather and we haven't been commissioned for series three yet so we're not sure if we will get to your problem but maybe just getting it off your chest will do anyway even if we never return uh, so you please send in your problems anyway and if we can get around to them we will um, but in the meantime I'd like to thank our resident agony aunts for their contributions thanks Liam thanks Carl and thank you thank you and thank you pickles for listening we'll be back next week with more problems to muddle our way through and more entertainment for you to check out bye 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 bye, bye. But I'd suggest keep it light Cause their advice can be shite And they won't be held liable Oh no, not at all Not here at Agony Arts